podcast. The book of Acts picks up right where the four gospels leave off. The risen Christ commissioned his disciples to go into all the world and preach the good news. Acts tells us exactly how that happened, how the soul-saving message of the gospel spread throughout the entire Roman Empire in less than 30 years. Through enormous obstacles and without many resources, proven leadership, or modern technologies, these early Christians turned the world upside down because they had the Holy Spirit at work in their lives. This is their story. Let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this amazing book. All righty, it is that time to pick up where we left off, people. You can take a seat and get settled. Let's do that with a word of prayer. Now, Father God, as we settle down, just kind of focus in now at the moment to hear from you through your word. We know the word of God didn't come from any man, but it came from heaven. It's God-breathed, as the scriptures say of themselves, and so sent to save us and to bless us and to keep us on that straight and narrow path that leads to life. We, we pray for open ears, God, to listen and to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We began last week with that phrase, that infamous question the kids like to ask, Frequently, while on a road trip, uh, are we there yet, right? Well, regarding the first missionary journey, uh, by the end of this uh, passage today that we've been studying, Paul and Barnabas out on the road, uh, we can answer the question, are we there yet, with a resounding yes. Because here in uh, Acts chapter 14, uh, we, it concludes with the uh, conclusion of the first ever uh, foreign missionary uh, tour as Paul and Barnabas have traveled now for two years, 1,250 miles meandering through the Mediterranean, preaching the gospel, the good news that Jesus, the Son of God, came down from heaven to save us from our sins and give us eternal life. Um, And so by the end of our passage this morning, uh, it will be time to head home, back to the sending church, uh, to their families and their friends, and guess who's there also? Their moms, right? Just in time for Mother's Day today. (laughs) How does God do that? It works it all together. What a joyful celebration that first time they meet together back in Syria, where the first Christian church outside of Israel was planted, and they are the silent heroes in this story. It is through their efforts, the sending church there at Antioch in Syria that's responsible for supporting these guys in ministry. Not, 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 one, ministry, not one missionary trip, but three. This is the first here, and it's about to come to its conclusion today in uh, chapter 14. So let's get that map back up there so you can get refreshed, okay? They began Antioch, right? They went down to uh, Cyprus, where, where Barnabas was from. And then, you know, they don't have any set destination. They know what to do, preach the gospel, but 
when and where and for how long, that's a day-to-day thing. That's the thing about God. He, he seldom gives you like a map quest turn by turn in your life, you know? He generally has, we, we, we generally are led by the providence of God uh, as, as we daily seek him. And so he led them up to mainland Turkey there in Perga. Then they went 100 miles north to another Antioch, but it's called Pisidian. And then they went to, see, the arrow's back is on their way home. So we're not quite there yet, but we're almost there. So we're at Iconium from last week. So let me remind you what happened at Iconium. Great numbers of um, people believed, responded to the message, became filled with the Holy Spirit, raised to new life. That's what becoming a Christian means. It's not just changing your mind and, and, and the old you trying to do Christian things. It's a supernatural encounter because you open your heart, the Holy Spirit comes in and changes you. You're raised up to new life, and that new life can never die. That's why you have eternal life. And so, yeah, but um, so Paul and Barnabas at Iconium, you recall last week, um, they are busy um, establishing the church, right? Organizing it, and Satan, the enemy of our souls, God's enemy, his name, Satan in the Hebrew means adversary, enemy. (laughs) He didn't take that lane down, and so he stirred up a mob of haters, those who rejected the gospel and hated the missionaries, and they planned to murder Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas found out, you recall, and they make haste to the new city of Lystra, and that's the subject of our text this morning. That's where we pick up. Uh, So they flee from Iconium, down about 50 miles southeast to Lystra. That's the next stop, all aboard. Verse 8, in Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet. They're probably by the gate or in a place where disabled people are, uh, but they're in the town square there in Lystra, and uh, uh, they said there sat a man crippled in his feet uh, who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, obviously sharing the gospel. Paul looked directly at him. The Holy Spirit kind of uh, gave him the discernment. He saw that this man had faith to be healed, and he called out, stand up, man, (laughs) get on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. And so there you have it, note takers. We begin with a miracle, and by the way, all of the points will be brought to you this morning by the letter M. I don't know how that works, but they all line up. Pastors tend to do that, don't they? So we begin with a miracle. Now, uh, their usual strategy sort of mixed up. You'll notice uh, uh, normally Paul and Barnabas, who are Jews, they're Christians, uh, they will find in these foreign places a Jewish community uh, and they go first there, and they they would prefer to preach the Jewish Messiah to the Jewish community who knew the Jewish prophecies, right? And so comparatively speaking, it would be a little bit easier to go in and just bring that missing piece, as I've been saying these weeks. Instead of going outside those four walls first uh, to the Roman-ruled world, they're in Lystra, they're clueless, they're worshiping images of frogs and snakes and cows, uh, guided by dark superstitions and the occult and all kinds of satanic rituals 
and the like. They were really into Roman mythology, Zeus and Aphrodite and all of that nonsense. Uh, They were without God and without hope in this world as the scriptures described them. And so with no synagogue in these smaller cities, there was no uh, synagogue because there was no Jewish community. And so uh, the Holy Spirit opts for a different approach. It's time for Operation Let's Get Their Attention, (laughs) a.k.a. Signs and Wonders. So you'll see in verse 8, a man who's never walked a day in his life. It's a smaller town. Everyone knows him, his struggle, his family, the whole thing. They know he's never walked a day in his life until some preacher came to town with this message about this Jesus, and now suddenly this man is jumping up. So nothing like the supernatural, a miracle in this case, to get a big crowd and in a hurry. So when he jumps up, eyes are popping open, the mouths are falling open, they're amazed. God sent miracles. They come uh, to give credibility to the message because there's big claims here. Listen to this message. Just listen and believe and you'll be living forever. All your sins will be wiped out. God who loves you, you'll be reconciled to God. Come on. Just by listening to this message and saying, okay, let's do this. So God knows that that's asking a lot, and so he likes to give people, especially where there's no Bible, no uh, Christian witness per se, no church on every corner. He's very generous with the signs and wonders uh, because he loves people, for God so loved the world. God is willing that nobody perish, but that all come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. That's 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. Uh, note taker. So Paul's preaching and the man is believing. What a winning combination. The word of God and faith. Here are two scriptures that show that that's all it takes. Consequently, faith, saving faith, the thing that saves you, it comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. So when, when the sinful heart and the sinful person hears the message, God has infused the message itself with the power of heaven to transform a person's destiny and their soul and change them into somebody new. And that person will live forever. Again, in Corinthians, he says, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the message of the cross is, quote, foolishness to those who are perishing. Ah, nonsense. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And then in 21, he says, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, the so-called foolishness, to save those who believe. And so here's a man who hears the word, and he believes. And somehow, Paul gets a prompt of the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit says, hey, salvation's happening. Row three, to the right, the man on the mat, you know. And you can tell, you honestly can tell, as a, somebody who's spoken to crowds for close to 40 years, you just know when God is on somebody, the countenance, the, their, their body language, you just kind of know, and that kind of thing was happening. You know, the countenance or the inner witness, and Paul knows 
the prompt of the Holy Spirit. He puts two and two together, and he gets a little chutzpah, and uh, he says, stand up, brother. You're going to heaven. You're one of us now. Get up. And the guy gets up, jumps to his feet. Yeah, indeed, the one, and here's the message he's sending. The one who gives strength to these lame legs, he can give life to your mortal souls. That's the message there. In Acts chapter 3, and you may have gotten it mixed up with this one, there's a similar account, only it's in Israel, it's in Jerusalem, and it's not Paul speaking, it's Peter. And there's a beggar lying by a gate, but it's the gate of the temple, He's been paralyzed from birth. So there's a lot of similarities here in the stories. Uh, Neither of these guys knew the ease or the satisfaction of saying, hey, I want to go over there, and then get up and go over there. Never. Not once. Not a day in their life did they ever put one foot in front of the other, you know? And yeah, they never walked along the beach. They never went for a hike on a mountain trail. Or simple, the simple task of just getting out of bed by themselves without assistance their whole lives. How heavy, one writer said, how heavy the burden of being a burden. That's the story of these two men's lives. But all that changed because they encountered the word of God and they surrendered. Instead of going, no, they said, yeah, yes, this makes sense. It's truth. And I yield to it. And now they're walking and leaping and praising God. Well, they were in Acts chapter 3, and here's where the stories go different, all right? In Acts chapter 3, the man jumps up with a lot of joy, and the Jews and the man in the temple courts praise God. Here in downtown pagan Lystra, the pagans do not praise God. They do this, verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, that's the first mistake, (laughs) they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he did all the talking. Verse 13, the priest of Zeus just happened there, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and rays to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas as their new gods. Yeah, the moan. The moan says it all. The moan and the groan of the congregation of Christian people who are terrorized by that very thought that somebody would think more of ourselves than more of us than it they ought to and give the credit to us instead of God. Well, We move from the miracle to a mistake. I wasn't going to call it a misunderstanding, but it's not a misunderstanding. It's intentional. You know how we delude ourselves and we hear only what we want to hear? Because Paul has said something very, very close to what they say. I'm going to show you that in just a second. Broken and messed up sinners that we are, you know, we often hear only what we want to hear And yeah, uh, for good reason, you know. And it's funny, uh, it's funny, I can assure you that nothing Paul has said, nothing he's said or done could lead this crowd to come to this crazy conclusion. And it's funny, the man who receives the miracle, and there'll be other Christians named later 
in the crowd, other new believers. None of them came to that funky conclusion that this is Zeus and Hermes. Uh, But these Zeus lovers who love immorality, the freedom to do their own thing, because Zeus lets them do whatever uh, Zeus wants, you know, uh, whatever they want to do, Zeus is cool with. They loved the lives that they were living there with idolatry. They heard what they wanted to hear. It's like parents talking to teenagers, right? Clean your room. Take out the trash. The kid says, hey, I want my friends are going to Scandia later on. Well, clean your room. Take out the trash. It smells in there. You know, just, just clean up, and then you can go, right? So <laughs> later in the afternoon, mom and dad come by the room. They notice Uh, That Junior's room looks like a scene from one of those shows about hoarders. (laughs) And so later, Junior's excuses, this is what Junior heard, uh, right? I totally misunderstood, okay? Um, I had, sorry. (laughs) If I do that a little too well, you know. Uh, I heard you say, yes, of course, go hang out with your friends and your buddies at Scandi as long as you clean up your room sometime down the road, you know. And then the parents go, did I say that? Is that what I said? Well, actually, that's exactly what they did say, but they reversed it, you see? And that's what's happening here. This is exactly what Paul has said, only they tweaked it. Because Paul says this. Look at what they say there. The gods have come down to us in human form. Oh, excuse me. This is the gospel. God has come down to us in human form. His name is Jesus. He came to lay down his life for our sins that we need to repent of and bow before this God who is Lord of all. That was the message. So they got the words, but then they inverted them. They redefined them to fit into their immoral, sin-loving, self-serving lives. And that happens today. We have modern-day Lyconians among us who have taken Paul's words. Look at Philippians 2. I'm not making this up. This is exactly the gospel he would have been preaching. Jesus, the very nature of God. He's God. He did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human form. Jesus himself will, will say, I came down from heaven. So God came down from heaven, and his name is Jesus, God's son, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even on the cross, and that's the part they said, no, thank you. Not a singular God who comes down, the judge of all the earth, and demands us to repent of our sins and shedding his blood for those sins. No, 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 no. What we're hearing is is that the gods came down to us in human form. You're Zeus, you're Hermes, let's get on with our lives. We can have our cake and eat it too. That's exactly what they want. They want to say, they probably call themselves Christians, but they worship Zeus and Hermes. They do it in their own way, you see. And, and that's what we have today. We, we have that going on in our midst. It's called the progressive gospel, where God, you know, <laughs> where God is cool with you no matter what. You have a certain lifestyle that suits you. That's all good. 
No need to repent of your sins because there's no heaven and no hell. There's heaven for everybody. That's right. You haven't heard that gospel? And they say it's the gospel Paul preached. It's exactly the same strategy. Solomon was right. There's nothing new under the sun. It all gets gets repackaged and renamed and uh, and around and around uh, we go. And so here come the bulls and the festive ornamental wreaths before slaughtering them. Verse 13, you're following along with me. And of course the priest is, chop, chop, let's get this done because if if God has come down and not the gods, then he's in trouble. He's going to lose his job. And he's going to be found out to be a fraud and a false prophet as he is. So he's busy. And the bigger the sinner feels a threat to their lifestyle, the quicker they are to start justifying and getting busy uh, uh, opposing the truth to save their lives. And Jesus said, don't try to save your life. You'll lose it. Lose your life for my sake and then you'll find it. That's what's happening here and so and by the way I have written down here isn't it funny that even pagan illiterates know that a sacrifice is needed to approach whatever you call God they just know how is it that pagan religions all incorporate sacrifice and blood sacrifice in their liturgies why because the soul knows the soul knows God gave us a soul and it knows we're estranged from him. Something serious needs to happen. Somebody's got to pay for that with blood to appease that God whom we've offended by our sinfulness. They know. It's programmed in there and Paul's trying to tell them the truth that they don't want to hear the truth. They'd rather try to keep their sin, hear the truth, and kind of do it. We're kind of doing what you said. And kind of not. Mostly the kind of not. Yeah, indeed. But something did big. Something big did happen to bridge that gulf between an unhappy God and sinful man. And it's God himself shedding his blood. But these people aren't interested in that story. They're interested in shedding the blood of bulls. That's not going to help. Let's see, 14 through 18. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul finally heard, they finally made sense of it because they don't speak like Conian dialect. So they were saved from having to, to get the brunt of it at first. They didn't know the, the chaos. They tore their clothes when they figured it out <clears throat> and rushed into the crowd shouting, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, just like we've been telling you, human like you. We're bringing you good news. We've been telling you. Look at ING. So what we were just saying, <laughs> we're telling you to turn from these kinds of worthless things that you're doing right now. We just told you to stop doing the zoo stuff, and now you're doing the zoo stuff. Turn to the living God who made heaven the big creator, not your fables, your, your lifeless, weak, pagan fables. This is a God who made heaven and earth and sea, the sea and everything in them. Now, this is amazing here. In the past, he let all nations go their way. I'll explain what he means there. 
Yet he hasn't left himself without a, a witness, a testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you all rain for your crops from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food to eat and he fills your hearts with joy. You, pagans who love Zeus and, and don't want anything to do with him. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. So we've gone from the message and the big mistake and now to the message that, I should say, the miracle, the big mistake, and now the message to seek to correct the crowd's thinking and prevent this horrible deed from taking place. So, so they hear about it, they get it. Maybe now they're speaking in great Greeks, the international language. Everybody's kind of spoke that. But they had a Lyconian dialect, which started with the shouting and the chaos. So now, now they've put two, two, two and two together. And immediately, the two so-called gods send a signal to everybody who's looking at them by tearing their clothes. They reach in with two. Signify mourning, grief, or loss. They grab the collar and pull down, signifying a torn heart. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. Boom. So they're sending the signal <laughs> that this is not good. How hard to imagine the utter horror of doing something that God has done, and then people want to bow and worship you as God. One writer said, most believers are familiar with that frightening feeling when we are being given credit and praise that we know ultimately belongs to God. How much more terrifying this scene. The crowd wants to worship Paul and Barnabas as God. That is crazy. So they tear their clothes. It was a very Jewish thing to do, but not exclusively. The whole world in that, those days would know what that means. You know, when Job uh, lost everything and he got the news, he tore his robes. When King David heard that his best friend Jonathan had died, he ripped his clothing. And then, closer to the idea here about blasphemy, right? Um, Caiaphas, the high priest, on the night Jesus was betrayed, they took him to trial. And Caiaphas swore him under oath. I charge you by the living God. You tell us right now. Are you the divine son of God come down from heaven? Kind of thing. And Jesus said, yes, I am. And one day you will see me coming in the clouds with great glory and honor. And Caiaphas grabbed and tore and said, blasphemy, a man making yourself equal to God. Well, Caiaphas, you should have left your clothes alone and tore, and, and tore your heart in repentance. That would have been better and easier on your seamstress. I'm moving on. And by the way, that remark that Jesus makes to this man who's probably in Hades right now, he says, you're going to see me, i.e. the second coming is going to be visible to everybody, even those who have perished. That's amazing. Quote, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, every eye will see him in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Boom. Yeah, nobody's going to miss it and look around and go, what just happened? Nope. <laughs> nope, they're all going to see it. Now, it wasn't just tearing. They sent a message, like besides screaming, no, 
they're tearing and they're rush into the crowd. It's a rare phrase. In fact, rushing into the crowd is only that verb to run there is only used one other time in the Bible. It's to describe the Philippian jailer. In Acts 16, coming up where Paul and Silas have been beaten and flogged and thrown into prison and they're locked in stocks and chains and they're singing praise to God and that moves the heart of God so much that he sends an earthquake and he busts the doors open, the the chains fall off, the Philippian jailer is running all over the place wanting to kill himself because he thinks they got away. And the word for running around in the jail is the same and only word used here and there. To be out of your mind, to be so frenzied and panicked and running like a madman, that's what they were doing. Frenzied, panicked, yelling, screaming, pulling their clothes apart and still... At least it got them to quiet down so that Paul could give this unbelievably insightful speech. We'll take a look at it now. So there's a lull in, in, the, in the commotion. The first thing he says, it's a rhetorical question. It's more of outrage and bewilderment. He says, what are you doing? He's saying, what's wrong with you guys? What in the world could make you want to do something like this? There was nothing in our words or behavior that justifies this crazy response. In fact, 15b, we've been telling you just the opposite. Follow along in the text. We are men. We're ordinary human men. We're guys just like you. As we said, they always introduce themselves as servants of God. We are sinners. We're no different than you. We're men. We're broken. We're flawed. We're troubled. And when they said Christ died for our sins, Christ died for us, not for you pagans, right? We're part of the problem. So he continues there in verse 15. We're bringing you this good news. God has sent a Savior uh, you know, and, and I just love the ing on the br- we've been bringing. You know, this isn't he didn't just heal the guy and then bring the gospel. No, he was preaching first, saying the very things that they're now refusing to hear. You know, so it's sort of an indictment. The ing is like we've been telling you, we just told you, we'll continue to tell you what we've been saying the whole time, and now hear it again. As we clearly stated, we say again now. You need to turn. From these very things, the whole Zeus thing. We talked about this, didn't we, an hour ago? And now you're doing it. You're calling me Zeus. I just told you, don't do that. That there's a God who made heaven and earth, everything you see, he created. Did he point to the Taurus mountain range that surrounds them there in central Turkey? Did he do that? Probably you've got a fairy tale. You know you've made up these stories. They're crazy stories, but there's a God that God has made plain to you, Romans chapter 1, that this creation, where did it come from? Who do you think did this? Zeus and your make-pretend Aphrodite? No. It's one God. He spoke, and from nothing he made everything you're looking at. Where did you come from? Oh, come on, a half-self from your mother. 
a half cell from your father, it makes what's called a zygote. That is one cell. You were one cell for one hour and a half, one cell. Then becomes a 100 trillion celled spiritual being with organs and systems and functions. Come on. How did that happen from a microscopic cell? Explain it. And he says, let me tell you who that is. It's the God who made the earth. Look at the mountains. Look at the power. Look at the sea. And he put life in there. Isn't this a great God? Every time you go to Bodega, you see unbelievers standing there with their beverage, and they're gazing, and, and, and they're in awe. Of course, we're all in awe of what we see and life. But we are the ones who get to be inspired and to praise God and say, that's my father's work. That's my father's work, you see. And now he's going to move to something more. So he says, look, you know there's a God by looking at creation. And you know he's powerful. Don't you want that kind of power in your life? That's kind of the gist of it. And now he's going to do something phenomenal. He's going to say, not only can you know that God has power, you can know what kind of person he is, his character, his love, his mercy, his goodness. And how can you tell that? By the way he treats you better than you Zeus lovers deserve. And he says, there are three things that God has done. He says, first of all, in the past, God has let nations go their way. You know, that means, look, he's very tolerant with a rebellious world, isn't he? We're all still here. We're all still pretty doing, comparatively speaking, pretty well, generally speaking, because God, he is uh, slow to angry, uh, slow to become angry. He is turning the other cheek. He is going the extra mile. But he says he, he's not left himself without a witness. In other words, you, he's not invisible to you. He's let himself be known to you. He doesn't call them pagans, but I'm calling them pagans, okay? Uh, it, it's not like he's hiding from you. Here, he's been kind to you in three ways, even though you've been unresponsive to him. Rain from heaven to take care of your crops, crops that provide food on your table, and he fills your hearts with joy, you who want nothing to do with him. You who don't give him the time of day, he's been kind to you, and that's how you know he's merciful and kind. Most of the world gets daily bread without asking for it or acknowledging the one who gives it. And so he's saying, who's responsible for all of the good things in life, in the world, the good things you get to enjoy? That is God our Father. So he says, like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, be like your Father and love unlovable people, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Matthew puts it this way, he causes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good. The sun shine, bringing life and blessing on those who, do, who, those who are right with him and those who are not. He says he brings rain on those uh, who are right with him and those who are, uh, are, are not. He's good to both, right? So God's kindness and undeserved blessings to all people, it, that's called common grace. Now think of it. Think of people you know who reject the gospel, don't want anything to do with God. 
Think of the biggest atheists in the world. I'm thinking of corporate America, politicians, professional athletes, Hollywood, or just the average guy who does quite well in this world with their families. The greatest opponents of the Lord, God has been the most kind to. Look at this, number one. He's blessed them financially. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, it is God who gives man the ability to produce wealth, period. No matter who you are or how you live, if you've got wealth, if you've got anything in the bank, he says, I did that. He takes credit for it. Every dollar you have, God says, I gave it to you. Well, what about me? Yes, thank you for working, but I blessed it. You. you would not have it if I didn't give it to you. And so he goes on. Uh, they have been given good jobs by God. These people want nothing to do. They have a job. They have retirement accounts. All from God. <clears throat> God gave it to them. They've been enabled to have cars. They have homes. Maybe one or two or more. Thanks to God. God says, you wouldn't have a house if I didn't give it to you. I gave you the house. They've experienced marriage, the joy of marriage. Quote, he who finds a wife finds favor from the Lord. Period. Proverbs 18.22. Period. No matter who you are, if you ever found a wife and it's worked out quite nice, just know this. You've had God's favor involved on you, believer, unbeliever. doesn't matter. He takes credit for it. He says, that's where a marriage comes from, me. And I led you to her. You have her because of me. They have children. Oh, what does he say about that? Children are a gift from the Lord. Psalm 127.3. To just us? Uh-uh. If you've ever had a child, it's because God gave you that child. Whether you love him or not. <laughs> no, him. Whether... Oh... <laughs> Whether you love him or not, he's blessed you with it. I didn't understand the giggle. I was like, what's funny? Yeah, now it, it is funny. He gives, he gives them vacations and memories and graduations and promotions. God will say, there was never one promotion ever granted to any human being without me doing it. That's God's thinking on everything. He's behind every good and perfect gift. It comes down from him, period. No matter who receives it and the condition of their lives, all praise and glory for the source of everything that makes anybody ever smile, it came from God. It came from God. Children marry. They're blessed with grandchildren. They retire well the whole time, their whole lives. They mock the idea of God. They ignore him. They oppose him. They deny him every step of the way. And they take all the credit for every good thing in their lives. They give credit to anything except God. Yesterday, I think I told you, I mentioned I rode the 100K. Um, it sounds better than 62 miles. <laughs> but so I tell it in kilometers. It's called the 100K wine country cycling adventure. And uh, I met a guy who's retired. He was uh, helping out at the... Wells Fargo Center getting us ready. He's 78 years old. He's telling me his story, and we're becoming best friends like I like to do with everybody I meet. And uh, <laughs> we're talking, and he says, uh, I've had four heart surgeries, and you know what's kept me alive? The bike. And I said, the Lord. <clears throat> and I used my finger, and I got right in his face, because he's 78. How long does he have left? 
I mean, what I meant to say was he could live forever. <laughs> no, sir, it's not that. And then he said it again. He said it again. He goes, well, you know, thanks to the bike, thanks to the Lord. And he goes, yeah, that too. Yeah, that too. Anything except God. And so Paul's telling unbelievers then and now, the goodness and graciousness of God is evident in the many good things about life in general and in the many, many ways God has been kind to you. But it's a tough crowd. And so even with all of that, (laughs) impassioned, anointed words, they still want to sacrifice to them. One writer said, spiritual stubbornness is the greatest liability to one's immortal soul. Yeah. Watch out for that. All right, so let's finish up. 19 to 23. Now, you're not going to believe this. Jews who were enraged at Paul and Barnabas from two stops ago, a hundred miles ago. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. (laughs) Yeah, excuse me. Now, as I was saying before I was interruptly murdered, (laughs) rudely interrupted and murdered, uh, the next day he and Barnabas left for Derby, the little town, uh, 20 miles out. They preached the good news, and in that city they won a large number of disciples. That's the time it seems like Barnabas turned to Paul, battered, bruised, lacerated, Listen, man, it's time to go home. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, which is crazy because they they were under threat of death in, in, in those three places, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them. So they're retracing their steps, right, to be true to the faith. And here's the bottom line. Here's the topic sentence of everything they showed up. They show up limping and with the scars, and they're swollen. He's got broken bones been stoned to death, as it were. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Unfortunately, it's phrased in English. There's a little bit of, it needs some clarification. I'll get to that. So Paul and Barnabas appointed elders as they went home in each stop along the way. Make sure pastors is another word for elders in each church and went not arbitrarily or randomly, but with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And so let's go from uh, Paul's message to correct them to attempted murder. <laughs> All right. So uh, here these guys come, the bad guys. They, these are the Jews, probably the rabbis and the high-standing Jewish people who've had their lives turned upside down in the past two missionary stops. Now, they're enraged. Why? They lost half the congregation. That means half their income. Now, uh, their good friends and family, maybe their kids or their wives, believed in this nonsense gospel. And now they don't meet on Saturday with the Jewish crowd anymore. Oh, no, they meet on Sunday across town at somebody else's house. So he's lost income. He's lost people. Their families are divided. And Paul is going to pay. 
so much so that they've invested money and they have traveled 100 miles. And they are like doing private investigation to find this guy and make him pay. That's what's happening there. And so, so they arrive right on time, verse 19, thanks to the devil <laughs> who's instigating these haters. Uh, they show up at the height of the frenzy and the confusion and the pinnacle of the crowd's disappointment. Because the, the crowd's disappointed. Oh, you're not. They're not Zeus. This isn't uh, our having our cake and eating it too. Oh, they were telling us about this Lord that we're going to have to bow down to. So they're coming down from l- worshiping them as gods and being smacked in the face like, no, they're not gods. They're men who are telling you something you don't want to hear. So in comes the haters to stir that up and they, quote, win the crowd over. So let the slander begin. So they're like, hey, men, they've upset our entire city. They've divided our families. They split up friendships, which that's, the gospel does that, you know. They've been introducing strange customs. And hey, listen, fellas, if you, if you let this go on, There'll be no more drunken Zeus festivals. There'll be no more shrine prostitution. And you know what you're going to be doing on Sunday? You're going to be singing. Long time singing all the Sunday morning. (laughs) So what do we want? Paul dead. When do we want it? Now. Now, why not Barnabas? Why not Barnabas? Well, because, funny thing, and this is how it goes, he and he and others in the crowd, they all believe and all have said, pretty much, maybe more quietly and subtly, exactly what Paul says. But it's the guy with the mouth. It's the guy with the mouth that has to bear the brunt. You know, sometimes I wish I wasn't the guy with the mouth because it's the guy with the mouth that gets it. You know, and it's so funny because it's like all of you believe the same thing. All of you believe the same thing I'm saying, but no, the, the newspaper article will be about me. <laughs> and I'm glad, I'm glad. Like Paul says, I'm happy to do it for you. <laughs> now, stoning someone to death is a very effective way to kill them. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Jewish thing, and, the, and, and so the crowd gladly joins in. Did Paul start to think as they grabbed the rocks, oh, I did this to Stephen. I did this to Stephen. Paul watched their clothes and gave two thumbs up and said, kill him with stones. So now he's like, oh, this is how it felt bring it. He probably said, bring it. Like, I deserve this, you know. And notice how fickle the world is. This is a good thing to note. The same hands that wanted to worship them only a short time uh, before now want to kill them. That's the world. They'll love you today, they'll hate you tomorrow. Just one wrong move on your part, one wrong post, one lack of a post, (laughs) the right post, (laughs) that includes them, and it's over. You know. Uh, Here's the solution. Get yourself worth and well-being from God who created you and not those around you. That You'll have less drama and less disappointment and less tossing and turning at night. <clears throat> so they smash his head and his body with rocks until they think he's dead. It says they think he's dead. Someone checked his breathing. Are we done yet? I don't, I don't, see, I don't feel anything. Hmm. So they drag him out. He's lifeless. They don't see any respiration. 
and they'd take him outside the gates and leave his corpse in a ditch. And look at your text. Where are these disciples coming from? You know, the disciples. Not everybody loves Zeus in that crowd, but we have some converts there. And they gather around him. And what do you think they're doing gathered around him? Well, whatever they're doing worked. Praying, because up he comes. A lot of scholars say, as I told you last week, that they believe that Paul actually died and God raised him from the dead. Now, why do we think that? Well, for one, there's a little play on words. When he gets up, the same word, uh, uh, it's, uh, I've got it written down, anisteme in the Greek. And when it's the same word that Jesus uses when he says, they're going to mock me, they're going to spit on me, and they're going to crucify me. But on the third day, I will anisteme. I will rise. So when Paul gets up, he uses the word for resurrection there. Now, further proof is this one right here. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Maybe I don't have it. I'll just read it to you. He tells the Corinthians 14 years ago, whether it was in the body or actually I was there, I got caught up to heaven. I don't know if I was there physically or I've just seen things. God knows. But then he repeats it again. He says, I was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. The timing of 14 years works. So this would explain a lot that the man who writes (laughs) by the power of the Holy Spirit half of the New Testament and can write the book of Romans, of course, he's had to have been to heaven What else would keep you going from town to town after they try to murder you and in fact probably did murder you but God said, you know what? It's not your time yet. But just an amazing possibility uh, and I just think it's what keeps inspiring this man to go on and to go on and to go on like that. Verse 20 and B, uh, verse 20 B, Paul gets up and goes back into the city. He's bleeding. He has lacerations. He's surely broken bones, the ribs for sure. Bruised, swollen, horrendous pain. But they don't flee. They go back in and there's, they see that. They see that. And God has his hand on that crowd like one wrong move and you're all going to be gone. So they, he puts the fear of God on them. And so why, why do they come back in? There's no homes. There's no homes outside that gate. There's just wilderness. He, this guy needs to lay down. He needs to be cared for. So there was one choice. Go back in there or go down a 20-mile dirt road. We're going back in. And they went back in and spent the night. Then in the morning, they didn't push the envelope. And they left. God directed them. And he goes in verse 20 to Derby. They share the word of life. Come on. Every breath hurt him. Every breath. He's standing there with contusions. And he's preaching the gospel, which is only endearing the message to their hearts. With them saying, this is a message, this guy's, it's worth dying for. He's keep talking. If it wasn't real, wouldn't he go away? Why would he risk doing that again here? This must be the truth. And so they preach, and so they listen, and they have success. Now, that's where God puts it on their heart to 
uh, return home. And Barnabas probably had to convince him and say, man, it's time. And he goes, let's, let's go home the smart way. Let's go back into all these towns. He's like, dude, they're trying to kill us in these towns. That's where the churches are now. Let's go back. And they have the message, the motto. So they see Paul get, the, get to the platform, and he's hunched over, and he's holding his side, and his nose is crooked now, and he looks terrible. And he says, hey, listen up. When you come into the kingdom of God, it's going to mean a lot of hard, hardship. That's what that verse means. We don't earn our way into heaven by enduring hardship. Because we get into heaven and live a godly life here, we have to endure much hardship. What he's saying is, look, this comes along with the package, folks. And that's why um, I'm here today, he says, uh, preaching the same gospel. And so uh, it just works. And so that's what he's telling them. Everybody who wants to live a godly life has to um, suffer some form of persecution and so uh, finally notice in verse 23, every town, every town and every place there is a Christian community will have a pastor, and that's how you know there's a church there. Uh, it's not a Bible study where people open the Bible and nobody's leading and everybody's just sharing their ideas about what the verse means. That's called a, a nice fellowship, a Bible study. It's not a church. You have to have a pastor, a God-appointed pastor called and gifted to pastor. That's that's what the Bible says there. And so they go back, show the map, and we'll be done, please. So they're in Derby right now, right? So they're going back to the same places where that they tried to kill them. They do, we do in the next paragraph here that they stop in Perga on their way to get on the boat to go back to, to sail to Antioch. Uh, that they preach and win disciples there. You remember the last time they came up through Perga, that's where John Mark departed, and in that chaos there was no preaching. But on the way back, they stop, they preach, and they win the disciples, and then they go back home and they share those one. Oh man, to be in that gathering, uh, you know, to hear the stories. We were on Cyprus. There was a sorcerer, and Paul called down a curse from God, and he blinded the guy for three days. And, and man, the stories just get bigger and bigger from there. The amazing, wonderful things of new lives and transformed people and all of this goodness because that they prayed for them and sent them and supported them. And now they have, and it's going to be two years, they're going to stay there. And then two years later, over a cup of coffee at Starbucks, Paul is going to say to Barnabas, Barnabas, two years, I wonder how they're doing. Let's go back and visit them again. And Barnabas says, let's do this. And that's the next chapter. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your love. We look to you now. Bless us, Lord, as we reflect on these things. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.